0: Hello, friends. Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025. And the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Airy Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. Most Christians don't know the amazing benefits experiencing the Bible lands can have on their walk with God. So, I created an online resource that helps anyone get the most from a Holy Land tour, whether they travel there physically or experience it virtually through our videos. Check it out at WalkingTheBibleLands.com Hello, and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your life. In this episode, we're going to see the triumphal entry of Jesus as He begins the Passion Week, and we'll see that Jesus wants to find three kinds of fruit in your life. As Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, bearing fruit for God is essential, and Jesus is going to show us how. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. None of us had perfect parents, including our children. which makes it so hard to try to buy greeting cards. <laughs> Have you ever been to the store when, and you're trying to buy a greeting card and you know for a Mother's Day or Father's Day or a birthday or something like that? And it's just none of them work. You read through the, the cards and you think, Where, where's the section on dysfunctional families? <laughs> because they all say, you know, to the best mother... You know, you know, you're my you're my best friend, and well, what if she wasn't? What if she w- wasn't? It's tough. So that's when you buy a blank card, and you just kind of do your best to to fill it in. We're, but the the truth is, we all deserve to receive dysfunctional cards because we all contribute to the uh, the difficulty of our families. Well, in Mark chapter eleven, it sounds a bit twisted to say that uh, the application goes right to our family, but you'll see toward the end of it where it exactly does. The whole ministry of Christ has led up to this moment. As we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark, we we see Jesus presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He has presented himself through miracles, through teaching, He has provided convincing proof that he is exactly who he says he is, and he has proved it by doing miracles. And he says, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If Israel will repent and will change their way of thinking from the way they are to following uh, Jesus of Nazareth, then Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of David, will actually provide the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God. Well, time went on and Jesus began to realize, or it began to be evident, uh, that Israel wasn't going to accept him in spite of the miracles. In fact, they attributed the miracles that he was doing to Satan, to the power of the devil, as opposed to the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus began to withdraw his public offer of the kingdom of God to Israel and began to train his disciples for plan B which was really plan A all along, but it was a mystery, the Apostle Paul tells us, that it was a mystery in the Old Testament, not revealed prior to this time. Jesus took the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and said, I'm going to start something called my church, and even the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. Well, the apostles wanted nothing to do with this. They didn't understand it. They didn't want Jesus to die. He revealed to them several times, we've seen in Mark chapter 8 through 10, that he's going to go to the cross, and that he's going to rise again. But they rejected that, and instead they began to push the kingdom, and not only the kingdom, but their significant places in the kingdom, which was really what they were interested in. In fact, they were so interested in it, they began arguing with one another about who's the greatest. So Jesus, each time, would take them aside and began to teach them that the way up is down. If you really want to be great, then you become a servant. And it's very easy to see where this now translates into the home, because greatness in the home is not in position, but it's in servanthood. Mark chapter 11, they get to Jerusalem. So all up to this point has been leading to the beginning of the Passion Week, and now it begins. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know, we said last week that Bartimaeus was the last miracle um, in the book of Mark prior to the resurrection. I guess you could sort of count this event of going and untying this stranger's colt as a miracle, try that in a, with your neighbor one time. Just go and start the car that you see parked in his driveway and just say, you know, the Lord has need of it. He'll send it back when he's done. <laughs> Probably not going to happen. Not to mention Jesus sitting on a colt that had never been written before. Again, showing his mastery of all the kingdom, even the animal kingdom. You know, when we watch on television the national conventions—the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention—it's no surprise who the candidate's going to be. We all know, you know, who, who's going to be the candidate before they get there. Uh, we've known it for months, if not, you know, sometimes years. We'll have an inkling of who's going to be that person. Um, but it's not until the national convention that it's official. Up to that point, it's just kind of you know hopes. It's just kind of uh, uh, you know what the media does to hype it up. But at the national convention, whoever the candidate is will officially say, "I accept you know the nomination of this candidacy to be your to be your uh, candidate for president of the United States," and then everybody goes crazy. That's sort of what the triumphal entry was. Prior to this time. All the disciples knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he had not made it official until this moment. For Jesus to get on this colt is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9.9 basically says that your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. Uh, also, Daniel chapter 9, you can remember Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9, both looked forward to this very day of when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. Uh, In fact, Daniel was so meticulous in his prophecy that he predicted the very day that Jesus would appear in Jerusalem. Exactly 483 Jewish years, Daniel predicted, which is 476 Gregorian years by our calendar, from the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So from March 444 B.C., when the The wall around Jerusalem was built in the time of Nehemiah until Daniel, Daniel says the Messiah, the prince, would come, would be exactly uh, 476 years. And so if they had known, if they had taken Daniel's challenge, as Daniel said, to know and discern the timing, Daniel 9.25, know and discern the timing. They would, when Jesus topped the hill that day riding on the back of a donkey, there would have been a big banner on the walls of Jerusalem that said, Welcome Messiah! Because they would have known that Jesus was coming at that very time. But they didn't. Jesus rode in on a donkey, which was a clear statement that he was presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah. The disciples who went in front of him and behind him were basically making that statement because they said, verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is a quotation from Psalm 118 verses 24 and 25. A clear expectation of the the Messiah. That that the Messiah would come and provide salvation in the form of political deliverance, not in the form of dying for our sins. Um, But here's the problem. The kingdom is is not going to come until Israel repents. Look back just real quick in chapter 1, where Mark began his gospel, and let's look at something that we need to not forget. We've tried to reiterate it every time, almost every time we've begun the gospel of Mark in our lessons here in class. But look in chapter 1, verse 15. Mark one fifteen says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or literally has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel or believe in the good news, the good news particularly that the kingdom is near. But repentance was key to that kingdom coming. And so for them to shout now back in Mark 11, for them to shout in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom, the kingdom comes with repentance. And apart from repentance, as Mark showed us from the very beginning, the kingdom would not come. We know from another gospel, Luke's gospel, that Jesus was weeping as he rode down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey because he knew that uh, in just a matter of days that the nation would officially reject him as Messiah. So he officially presents himself, but, uh, he knew that they were, that it would be rejected. It's sort of like when, sometimes when I'll offer Kathy a dessert and I know she won't want it, but, you know, I have to, I have to offer because it's polite. If I'm going to be able to have a piece, I have to offer her a piece. I know she'll say no, but I have to offer. That's sort of like what Jesus was doing. He knew they would say no, but he had to offer because he had promised that he would. Zechariah had predicted it. Well, here on the Mount of Olives, on Sunday, the disciples are shouting for joy, but only in a few days, on that same mountain, those same disciples at the bottom of that hill in the Garden of Gethsemane would flee and would desert Jesus. On the same mountain on Sunday, they proclaimed him who comes in the name of the Lord, and a few days later, on late Thursday night, early Friday morning, on that same mountain, those same disciples would flee in terror. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. So this is Monday now. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Monday morning. Now, most of us, Monday morning's pretty tough. You know, we're not maybe in the best of moods, thinking we've got to get up and You're going to face a new week. Maybe Jesus was just having a bad morning. Jesus, uh, they were staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, probably in Bethany. And maybe Martha didn't get up that morning, big surprise, and cook breakfast for everybody. And so Jesus was hungry. Maybe he was in a bad mood. You, You know I'm saying this facetiously right. Jesus was not in a bad mood. Why in the world would Jesus curse a fig tree? It sounds more like something that would come from the Gospel of Thomas these infancy gospel infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is uh, heresy, talking about Jesus getting mad with his playmates and they fall over dead. How'd you like your kids to play with Jesus <laughs> Well, Jesus walking along the road sees this fig tree it's not the season for figs, but he curses it anyway. Why well, listen to what A good, trustworthy commentary wrote about this. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. "'Fig trees produced crops of small, edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April.'" And this is early April, or end of March, early April. Uh, "'This early green fruit, or buds, was common food for local peasants. An absence of these buds, despite the tree's green foliage promising their presence— indicated that it would bear no fruit that year. Eventually, these buds dropped off when the normal crop of figs formed and ripened in late May and June, the fig season. Thus, it was reasonable for Jesus shortly before Passover in mid-April to find uh, to expect to find something edible on that fig tree, even though it was not the season for figs. So, if this wasn't a big surprise to Jesus... Why did Jesus curse the tree that morning just for finding no fruit on it? Well, the text is going to tell us. But notice it says the disciples were listening. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now let me just pause there for a second. This has happened before. Look back at verse 11. Jesus entered the Jerusalem and came into the temple and looked around And left. All right, now verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. So here we go again. And began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, "'Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations?' But you have made it a robber's den. In the original language, "you" is emphatic. You can just picture him pointing his finger. You have made it a robber's den. When you go to Jerusalem today, if you uh, you'll probably walk through what's called the Christian Quarter, and it is a a, um, a labyrinth of streets with shops that. You know the doors barely miss each other in the in the aisle as they open, and then it's just these merchants that that try to hawk their wares on you. It reminds me of uh, like bait on a trot line as you're walking down these streets. And every for some reason, every set of postcards bo- bottoms out at one dollar. You know if you can't sell it to you for five bucks, then one dollar is is what they'll offer. Everybody is trying to sell you something as a tourist when you're there. And it's sort of a collision in the Christian quarter. I think of it as a collision between faith and commerce. You're there because of your spiritual life. You're there wanting to connect with the Lord and to see the places that are significant in the life of Christ. And yet you're constantly accosted by people trying to sell you stuff. Part of it is because we look so touristy. I mean, we might as well have a shirt that says, sell me something on it. But the locals do this, and olive wood statues are uh, the treasure. I remember one time being in a store, and it's olive wood everything. I mean, you walk in, and the whole place is brown because it's just olive wood. And I saw one figure. It It looked like a bust of Elvis Presley. You know, it was this guy with this kind of curled up lip and the collar was was up. And I thought, that's what's Elvis doing here, you know, with Samson and and David and Jesus in the manger scene. And so I asked the owner and he said, No, that's Joseph Smith. (laughs) Joseph Smith, of course, is the founder of Mormonism. And I thought, well, okay. And I told him I thought it was Elvis. And he said, If you like, it's Elvis. (laughs) a collision between faith and commerce. Jesus enters the temple, and what does he experience? A collision between faith and commerce. In the sanctuary, in fact, the word that's used here for temple is not the holy place, but the general temple. It's the temple area, which would have included the area of the court of the Gentiles. And so for Jesus to walk into this area and in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to this incident. John actually refers to an incident at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he cleansed the temple. But Jesus asks them, he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Keep your hand here in Mark 11 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 56. Look at Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, if you look at verse 5, it's kind of an interesting sidebar. If you ever wonder where the Holocaust Museum gets its name, Yad Vashem, a hand and a name, is verse 5. It speaks of a memorial. But the context, interestingly, is Gentiles. Gentiles. Uh, Look at verse 6. You see God's love for the Gentiles. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. To minister to him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one who keeps from profaning the Sabbaths and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their, bur- their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations not just Israel. It was God's desire from the very beginning that all the nations be able to come to Jerusalem, to the temple that the Lord had set up, and that it would be a place of prayer for all the nations, including the Gentiles. Jesus quotes this. Now turn, if you would, also to Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 7. Jesus actually is putting two different quotes together here. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at Jeremiah 7 starting in verse 9. Now he's speaking to Israel. And the Lord says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. "'that you may do all these abominations? "'Has this house, which is called by my name, "'become a den of robbers in your sight? "'Behold, I, even I, have seen it,' declares the Lord. "'But now go to my place, which was in Shiloh, "'where I made my name dwell at the first, "'and see what I did to it "'because of the wickedness of my people Israel. "'And now because you have done all these things,' "'declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, "'rising early and speaking, but you did not hear.' And I called, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Hey everyone, Wayne here. If you've ever thought about taking a journey to Israel to see where the Bible actually occurred, then I invite you to come with me. My tours for this fall and the spring are full, but registrations have just opened for the Fall 2020 Tour to Israel with an optional pre-tour to Egypt. See the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com tours. I hope you'll join me, and I promise you will never read the Bible the same after you go to the Bible lands. And now, back to the message and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Remember what Shiloh was? Shiloh was that place just north of Jerusalem where the tabernacle rested for several centuries prior to David bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. Shiloh was the place where God was. It was the place of the tabernacle. It was where the very physical presence of the glory of God dwelt among his people. But because of the sin of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the compromise of Eli there in Shiloh, in spite of the godly influence of Samuel. The ark was taken away, and the glory has departed. And so, basically, Shiloh was destroyed. Shiloh was destroyed. The place where God dwelled was destroyed. Because God says, if I will not be treated as holy, then I will not dwell among you. And Jeremiah is saying, you want an example of what's going to happen to Solomon's temple? Go to Shiloh and look at what the Lord did there. God's going to do the exact same thing in Jerusalem. Now, that was the first temple. Jesus quotes Jeremiah. And for Jesus to quote Jeremiah about the den of robbers that in the time of Jeremiah justified the, uh, the destruction of the first temple and ultimately the exile. If Jesus quotes that, then what do you think Jesus is saying about the second temple in which he's in? That the same thing's going to happen to the second temple. You want an example of what's going to happen when my people don't follow me? Don't trust in the temple because the temple will ultimately be be destroyed. And in fact, we know that's what happened. So go back to Mark chapter 11. So Jesus quotes both Isaiah to show that God desired the Gentiles be able to come here and worship. And then he quotes Jeremiah to show that Israel had not been faithful and thus the temple would be destroyed. Jesus is anticipating the exact same thing going to happen in his day. Well, how do you think this sat with the leaders who heard his words? Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this, began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. So the chief priests and the scribes, who were experts in Isaiah and Jeremiah, knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And the people were so had enough savvy to be uh, astonished at the connection that Jesus was making that he could pull just a few words from Jeremiah 7 den of robbers and it was just freighted with meaning and implication of what Jesus was saying about that current generation that Jesus could pull from Isaiah and bring that into his into the current time the people were astonished at his teaching and the religious leaders were offended and wanted to be wanted to destroy Jesus Whew, well, that's just Monday of Passion Week. Let's look at Tuesday, verse twenty. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, "Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered." And Jesus answered and said to saying to him uh, to them, "Have faith in God." That does that strike you just as a little odd? Jesus, we're talking about the fig tree. Why are you giving us these platitudes about having faith in God? I mean, we don't have faith in God. Sure, we want faith in God. We're talking about the fig tree. Look, it withered. Why does Jesus give us this platitude about have faith in God? Well, if we don't take Jesus' words in context, it doesn't seem like he hears Peter's statement at all. Peter is astonished that the fig tree withered so quickly. In fact, if you read Matthew's account of it, the implication is it happened right away. Mark gives us a fuller example or a fuller explanation that it actually happened the next morning, or they recognized it the next morning. But this fig tree, notice the the cursing of the fig tree and the fig tree being withered sort of serves as a bookend to teaching or representing what happened in the middle. What happened between Jesus cursing the fig tree and the fig tree being withered, but him pronouncing judgment on Israel because of their lack of faith and and quoting, uh, lack of being allowed the Gentiles to come in and worship, and also their lack of faith as represented in what Jesus quoted in those Old Testament passages. So the Lord is basically connecting the fruitless fig tree with fruitless Israel. And when you make those connections, then all of a sudden Jesus' curse on the fig tree is not a curse on the fig tree, but it is a curse on on Israel or that particular generation. So you look back at Jesus' words, now you understand what he means when he says in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. That generation was about to lose its privilege in the eyes of God. In fact, not only that, God was going to shut down using Israel as the primary means of influencing the world and go with the plan B that that Jesus has been preparing his disciples for these many months. That is, the church. Jesus cursed the fig tree that morning not because it had no fruit on it. He was teaching his disciples and he was teaching us. Plenty of leaves from a distance. It looked like it might have it. But when you got up close... You realize it didn't. Think about that principle in our own lives. Because on the exterior, we all have healthy leaves. But you get up close, is there a fruit? If Jesus were to look at you from a distance, he'd be impressed. But if he got up close, what would he see? What do you see? What he was there to look to find. What, what, what do you see the fruit The the lives of religious leaders always bear leaves. Always. In fact, we work double time to make sure our leaves look good. But not always the fruit. So, our challenge, I think, is taking up the job of fruit inspector in the lives of other people. But that's not what this passage is urging us to do. Jesus is the fruit inspector. The challenge then is for us to look at ourselves. And we're going to see that here in just a second. But here's a principle that this text, that screams from this text. It's very easy to say, you know what? Jesus was saying, Israel missed it. Israel missed the opportunity. Others, others, others. Until you look at Jesus turning the table now, and talking to his disciples. When Jesus said, have faith in God, he wasn't talking to Israel. He was talking to the disciples. He was talking to us. When Jesus looks at your life, he expects to find fruit. That's the principle. And by the way, he's looking. He's looking. Jesus makes that walk from Bethany to Jerusalem every day in our lives. Now here's the good news. His grace comes with it. He is not looking to curse you. <laughs> he's, not, he's not looking at you to curse you. But he is looking to find fruit. Keep your finger here in Mark and turn a couple of books over to John chapter 15. A little bit later, this same Passion Week, Jesus made this statement to these same group of men. John chapter 15. Look at verse 16. John fifteen sixteen. He says to them, he says to us, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of my father in my name, he may give you. This is my command. This I command you that you love one another. You know, it's real easy to say, go and bear fruit. You bet, Jesus. I'm all for that. I want to bear fruit. What does that look like? Love one another. This is the same week. These are the same men. It's the same context and idea, same principle. So Jesus is talking back in Mark 11 now. He's talking to his disciples. Have faith in God. So Jesus is exactly applying this principle of the withered tree. Jesus is saying it's not enough to just say, look, we're talking about faithless Israel. Let's turn the table and talk to us now, guys. Let's talk about our lives. Have faith in God. Amen. We're all for that. What does that look like? Well, let's see what it looks like. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, which be the Mount of Olives, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things... For which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. So when Jesus looks at your life, he expects to find fruit. And the first area is faith in prayer. Faith in prayer. Have faith in God, Jesus said. What does that look like? Well, in your prayer life is a great place for it to begin. When you pray... Do you really believe that God can do what you're praying? In fact, Jesus goes so far to first of all give a principle and then to give an illustration. The principle that he gives is saying that whenever you pray to God, believe, and then he gives an example. Uh, in fact, it's such an example that it's it's what we call a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. It it stretches the bounds of reality to emphasize the certainty of the truth. Whoever says to this mountain to say to the Mount of Olives, be taken up and cast into the sea. And don't doubt, but believe it will be granted. And notice verse 24, therefore, so there's a connection. Now he applies the illustration. The illustration isn't, if you curse a fig tree, it'll wither. The application isn't, if you tell this mountain to move, it'll move. God doesn't want us moving mountains. He wants us to to have a, a faith that is so certain in answered prayer. And here's the application, verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things, keep that phrase in mind, all things for which you pray and ask, believe. All things. Jesus didn't just teach this principle. Jesus applied this principle to his own life. Look a few chapters over in Mark chapter 14. You know, if you don't keep what we just read in context, it really could sound like kind of a name-it-and-claim-it type of thing. Hey, ask God whatever you want, just believe it, and you got it. Well, how'd that work for Christ? Look at chapter 14. Uh, I think it's chapter 14. 36, yes, very close. My chapter 14 is just on the next page. Verse 36, he was saying, now he's praying to God, Abba, Father, all things, there's that phrase, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, there's the request, yet, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus is not only teaching in context. Ask God, because Jesus asked In fact, he even used the phrase, all things, just back in, just like he did back in chapter 11, verse 24. I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe Jesus did that. And yet, he, he appended it with, but Lord, you may have a bigger plan. So when you pray in faith, there is no reason you can't ask God exactly what you want, but just hold it with an open hand. Because God may say no. God may have a plan that's bigger than your plan. God may actually see around the corner at what's there, and he may know that he wants to be glorified in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. And again, keep this in context. You Remember what we talked about last week in chapter 10. Look back in verse 38 of chapter 10. Mark ten thirty-eight. This, is, this comes right on the heels of James and John having the courage and the gall to ask Jesus, let us sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. Give us the best seats in the house. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You know, there are times when we ask, and it's the same word. I checked it. It's the same word in the Greek. Verse 38, you don't know what you were asking. And then look back at chapter 11, verse 24. All things for which you pray and ask. Same word. But the reality is sometimes we don't know what we're asking. James and John, their prayer was, We want the best seats in the house. Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. In that case, God's going to say, No, I've got a bigger plan. And it doesn't include me, you know, glorifying you guys. Interestingly, that also happened to Christ in Gethsemane. Mark shows us both examples. Of the example of James and John in this same context where what they asked was not right to ask, so Jesus said no. And the example of Christ in in Gethsemane in which God the Father said no and God the Son yielded himself to the will of the Father. When you're praying, there's no reason you can't have faith. But what you're having faith is in God's ability to do it. Not that God will do it. One is presumption, another is faith. There's a big difference between presumption and faith. Presumption is praying and assuming that that God's will is your will. But prayer, like Christ prayed, is holding it with an open hand. Well, let's keep going. It doesn't just stop with prayer, but it goes deeper. Verse 25, Jesus says, "...whenever you stand praying..." Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And then, verse 26, you may or may not even have that in your text because uh, the bracketed text in my text shows that it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Probably was inserted by some scribe to give a clarification of what Jesus meant in verse 25 because uh, the verse 26 is basically a repetition of the idea that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 18 which is basically this if you don't forgive neither will your father who is in heaven forgive you your transgressions that doesn't mean that you as a christian if you don't forgive somebody that you're going to go to hell notice Jesus says your father we're not talking about you losing your your position as a child of god but he's talking about fellowship two different kinds of forgiveness Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of all your sins was taken care of when Jesus died on the cross. The forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here is a forgiveness of fellowship. It's your relationship with the Father. And he's saying, if when you pray, if you have not forgiven somebody, you are not in fellowship with God, and you can live your life potentially a life out of fellowship. Remember one time um, one of our daughters was treated very poorly by her coach. And um, I don't know, this wasn't the first time it had happened. And maybe it was one of those bad Monday mornings where I decided, you know what, it's time to curse a fig tree. <laughs> and I went over to this coach, and what I said was right, the way I said it was wrong. And a uh, big shocker, she didn't take it well. And, uh, you know, there wasn't the repentance that I had hoped for in her heart. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't either. And we locked horns right there on the court and uh, walked away from each other. And I thought, you know what, this, this isn't right. I need to, uh, I need to apologize. And so, you know, it was sort of a school function. And so anyway, I went to the school and said, look, I told them what I'd done. And, uh, I said, I need to apologize. And they basically said, well, why don't you not? Because we don't want to cause any. Rip. But they knew this coach was a problem because we don't, I, I don't know. I get the impression maybe they didn't want to lose her or whatever. But so I, I didn't for a, a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I, this isn't right. So the best I could do if I knew that a face-to-face conversation couldn't happen, because I wasn't going to meet this coach without an arbiter between us. Um, I just wrote her a letter. Wrote her a letter and apologized. Never heard back. But that's all right. I did what I had to do to make it right. Now, you may not be in a position that whoever it is that you need to forgive that you are able to have a face-to-face conversation. Maybe you know that would not go well. Write them a letter. Do something to make that connection. Because here's what you're facing if you don't. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that pretty much covers it. Why? Here's the purpose. So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. You see, now all of a sudden when Jesus said, have faith in God, it gets real practical. Christ isn't content to just say, well, I'm done with Israel now, we'll work with the church until I return. He says, no, guys, let's make it real practical. First of all, when you pray, you need to pray in faith and hold it with an open hand. And second, let's make it real practical. If there's anybody you need to forgive, and who do you think in the context that they would need to be forgiving? Remember after James and John asked their audacious claim how the other apostles responded? They were indignant. This was just a couple of days ago in the text. And I think from the text that the application that these disciples would have struggled against would have been with one another. So you see, it all comes right back around to the dysfunctional cards that I talked about. We, we all need to give them. And we all need to receive them because we are all flawed. And we need to live with one another and love one another with forgiveness. Otherwise, we are not ourselves in fellowship with God. Jesus looks for fruit in our lives. First of all, with regard to prayer, faith in prayer. Second, regard to forgiveness with others. And finally, regarding fellowship with God our Father. These are three areas that God desires fruit in our lives. So the good news is they're all within our grasp. If we'll just humble ourselves to pursue them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a Savior who doesn't just preach platitudes, who doesn't simply say have faith in God, but then he goes on to share what that looks like, and then he makes it so practical that we can apply it. That when we pray to you, that we can believe that you are a God who can do everything. And yet you have a will that's bigger than ours. If we'll pray in faith and yet also pray with humility. And help us also, God, is that person or persons who comes to mind when we think of someone we need to forgive. The, the bitter fruit. And your text, the text tells us anything against anyone. That is no exceptions, no bitterness, no grudges, no paybacks. That's hard. But Father, your grace has given us that kind of forgiveness to us personally. You have forgiven us all of our sins. So give us with that motivation of gratitude and realization of the grace that we've received to pass that grace on to others who are just as flawed as we are. Thank you for the life of Christ and the teaching of our Lord and for the grace that gives us the chance, the second chance, to continue to follow you day by day. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Did you catch those three kinds of fruit? Here they are once again. Faith and prayer, forgiveness with others, and fellowship with the Father. They're all related. Jesus wants to find fruit, and the good news is when he looks in our lives, he brings his grace. If you have questions about any of these, I'd love for you to make a comment on this episode at waynestyles.com podcast. Well, next time, we're going to see what you've been waiting for. <laughs> That's all I'll say for now, but believe me, it is great news. Until then, live the Bible.